Mark chapter 1, in your Bibles, we continue to walk through the Gospel of Mark, the first written account of the life and ministry of Jesus, the shortest written account of the life and ministry of Jesus, um, the Gospel of Actions, where we know Jesus by what He does. Uh, don't let the, the brevity, the shortness of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, make you think that there's not depth to Mark. Mark can say more with fewer words than uh, we can imagine, which maybe as members of the Crossing Church you would hope your pastors would learn how to do. Um, but Mark's already revealed in the first eight verses we walked through two weeks ago the, the depth of how he can already begin to lay out this gospel of Jesus Christ with, with such depth that he's, he's drawing our hearts and our minds from the Old Testament forward. So this work of Christ is not something that just showed up out of nowhere. It's a continuation of the work of God throughout all of time and history. He goes all the way back to the beginning when he, when he starts the Gospel of Mark with the beginning, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, as God had done something in the beginning of creation that was amazing and awe-inspiring and worship-producing, so now he's doing something else that's amazing and awe-inspiring and worship-producing. Something new, though. This Gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, the Old Testament had left the people of God hanging with this expectation that one would come like the prophet Elijah who would prepare the way of the Lord. And all of a sudden, one day, this guy shows up named John the Baptizer, calling God's people back to the wilderness, which had significance, as we'll see, to repent and be baptized, to recommit, to, to have a, a recommittal ceremony of their relationship with the God who called, called them and created them and made them his people. But John, as amazing as his work was, he, he kept saying, look, it's not about me. I'm not the one. As good as this is, what I'm doing, I'm pointing you to one who's greater who's coming, one who's mightier, one who can do more than just baptize us with water, one who can baptize us with the Holy Spirit. And then, as we'll see today, this one showed up. Mark chapter 1, beginning of verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Father, we are grateful for your word. We are so grateful that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us, that we could know you and love you and worship you. You've chosen to save us so that it's even possible for us to, to sing songs and pray prayers and, and listen to your word proclaimed and, and it produces worship that blesses the God who created the universe. It's mind-blowing that we, very fragile, broken, sinful people, can do that, yet you make it possible. And so there's work that we need done in us this morning through your word and spirit, and we ask you to come, to come and do this work in our midst. Bring salvation. Bring repentance. Bring healing. Bring hope. Bring conviction. Bring encouragement. God, you know us. You created us. You are our Father. And so work in us however you see fit today. For your glory we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So this event uh, was incredibly significant in the life and ministry of Jesus, yet in true Markan style, Mark only uses 53 words in the original language of the New Testament to describe this incredible event. 
uh, an event so important when the early church was gathered in the upper room after the, the, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension of Christ. And they're looking for someone to replace Judas Iscariot. He had, he had betrayed Christ. He had killed himself. We need 12 disciples. Who's going to be the 12th? Part of the criteria of who this person would be was, was he with us from the beginning? Well, what was the beginning? The baptism of John. Acts chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. So one of the men who had accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John. Like, so the 12th disciple has to have been with us from the very beginning. This is universally recognized as the beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ. In fact, when Jesus is later confronted by religious leaders in Mark chapter 11, he had driven out the money changers, he had demonstrated all this authority in, in the gospel of Mark, and the, the religious leaders come to him and said, who do you think you are? Where's your credentials? Where's your badge? Who gives you this authority to come into the temple and take charge like this? Where does Jesus go for his authority? He goes to the baptism of John. Mark chapter 11. I'll ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you. By whose authority or what authority I do these things? Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And of course, the typical political religious leaders kind of held their finger in the wind to see how should we answer this, how are the people going to respond, and they don't answer. And so Jesus doesn't answer them. He just left the hanging right there. So this was the true beginning of the work and ministry of Jesus. And since Mark is all about what he does, he doesn't begin with the birth narratives or the genealogy. He just gets right into the action. John the Baptist and Jesus getting baptized. Now, I mentioned two weeks ago that uh, this baptism of John was very unique. There's nothing in the Jewish culture or life or religious experience that was anything like this kind of baptism. It was, it was a, a baptism you had to receive. It wasn't a baptism you did yourself. So it was pointing to the people that like, you had to receive this. You, you can't save yourself. Someone else has to do this outside of you. And you have to receive it from this person. And it was a baptism that, that was pointing them to the fact that, they, that, that just being Jew, that, that the fact that you're, you're born ethnically a Jew is not enough. Like there could have been some that thought, wait, wait, why are we being baptized? We're already God's people. Why are we going through this? And so this repent of your sins and be baptized, you're still a sinner, you Jew. There's something more that you need for salvation. It's not just enough to be ethnically a Jew. And the one that I'm, do, that I'm doing this with water, but there's one coming who's going to do this with the Holy Spirit. It's going to create life in you, this new creation. So the first question you may already have that I want to deal with is, why was Jesus baptized? Why was Jesus baptized? This is a baptism for repentance of sin. So why is Jesus receiving this? He's not a sinner. What, what's going on here? And so uh, before we get into that, let me, let me just say this, because me and Scott and Kendrick were kind of kicking this around this week. Like, we want to teach the Bible in a way that makes the Bible as accessible to you as possible. We, we're not interested in getting up here and teaching uh, in such a way that you're impressed with our knowledge or you think we're really smart or we're sh showing off how many Greek and Hebrew words we can say or how many commentaries we can quote. Like, that's not the desire. We, we don't want people to feel like you've got to go to seminary to understand the Bible. At the same time, um, we want to put you in the shoes of the first century readers and hearers of the Bible. And we've got 2,000 years of culture and language and tradition and customs that, that we have to bridge, 2,000 and more, that we have to bridge. And, and some of that we don't know without study, without men of God raised up through over 2,000 years to write down. This is what it was like to be a first century Jew, first century Gentile. This is what it was like to be a Hebrew in the Old Testament. 
And so there are things that the original audience would have heard and understood immediately that we don't because of this gap of time and culture and language. So study is necessary to bridge that gap and put you in the shoes of those people. But, but don't take it as, well, I can't understand the Bible like that. No, you can. We've already made all the resources we're using for this sermon series accessible to you on the city. And they're very easy to read and understand. You can do that. And uh, I think also it's good for you to have confidence that we're not just creating these interpretations out of nowhere. We're standing on the shoulders of the people who went before us. And uh, you don't want us just making up stuff as we go. So getting into, so with that understood, getting into why was Jesus baptized? Well, Mark doesn't tell us. He simply records that it happened. Matthew attempts to give like some explanation because it, it could have been this was a little bit embarrassing to the early church. Like you say you have this Messiah, you say he was sinless, so then why is your Messiah getting baptized? Was he truly sinless? How are you going to explain that? And so Matthew actually recorded what some think is an explanation in Matthew chapter 3. John would have prevented him from being baptized, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me. And Jesus answered, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented and baptized him. But, but even, what does that mean? So take your mind back to the Old Testament. Think through the people of God. Israel was chosen by God beginning when God called a man named Abram to be his servant, to be his follower in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and all who him and in him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram goes, leaves, becomes this man of God, eventually becomes Abraham, a father of many nations. Abram Ham eventually has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes that grow exponentially in the land of Egypt during the time of famine. They become so great as a nation living in Egypt that the Egyptians become scared and threatened, so the Egyptians enslave them. They, they serve the Egyptians as slaves for hundreds of years, and they begin to call out for a deliverer, and God hears their cry, has mercy on them, and sends the deliverer named Moses. Moses goes with Aaron's help through miracles and signs of God, calls and brings the people out of Egypt through the Red Sea into the wilderness of Sinai. And it's there they truly become the people of God, the nation of God. It's there they become his people and he becomes their God. He, he establishes his expectations for this relationship with them. He establishes kind of his rules. And this is what it's like to be my people. And this is how, how you know me. And this is what you do when you mess up. And here's how I'm going to treat you when you do right. Here's how I'm going to treat you when you do wrong. This covenantal relational language is spelled out through the first five books of the Bible. And you have passages like Deuteronomy 7, 6, and 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So you're going to be my people. And I'm going to be your God. But it's actually more intimate than that. Like if you go back to the burning bush where Moses is being called by God to go and deliver the people, listen to the language God uses to Moses. Exodus 4. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And so God calls his son, his nation, into the wilderness. 
He makes them his people. He blesses them. He loves them. And they learn what it's like to serve and love God. And they essentially love and serve God, obey Him, and are blessed by God. And they live happily ever after, right? That's the Old Testament. Not quite. They rebel. They reject Him. They do their own thing. They go their own way. And the Old Testament is a, is a book after book filled with pain and hurt of God's people rejecting the love of their God. And God... And God punishing them as a good father does. Not punishing, but disciplining his children because he loves them as, as good fathers do. And, and God calling them to repentance and then returning and then messing up again. And they, they, they reject God as king. And so God gives them the king. And the king kind of becomes this representative between God and the people. And as the king goes, so goes the nation. So when the king walks in the ways of his father David and loves and serves God, so the nation does the same and the nation is blessed. And when the king is wicked and does what is evil in his own sight... Then the nation does the same, and God disciplines and punishes his people. But even as he disciplines them and punishes them and allows them to be captured by other nations, they are still his people. He still has a covenantal relationship with them. And so you hear language, and you read language in the Old Testament, like Hosea chapter 2, uh, verses 14 and 15. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, talking about the nation of Israel, I will bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. I'm going to bring my people back to the wilderness and reestablish my relationship with them because that's where it all started. And so the Old Testament ends and God is silent for 400 years until this guy, just like Elijah, shows up that the book of Malachi tells us he would come. And he's proclaiming this, come to the wilderness again, people of God. Come and be baptized and identify again with this God. and Repent of your sins and have this relationship with your God re- reconvened and remade and reshaped. And they go. They leave the, the cultural and the religious centers of Jerusalem and Judea, John, uh, Mark tells us. And they're doing this religious thing and repenting and believing. But, but here's the deal. This is still just water baptism. John says it's not enough. There's still one who's going to come and do more than this. He's going to baptize you with the Spirit, make you a new person. In other words, you're still sinful, Jewish people. This is not enough. It's not enough to be born a Jew. It's not enough to go through this religious rite. You need something more. And then one day, this guy shows up from Nazareth. Nazareth, a town that is so insignificant... It's not mentioned anywhere in the New Te- Old, Old Testament. It's not mentioned anywhere in the intertestamental writings. It's not mentioned anywhere by any Jewish historian. From Galilee, that is far from the religious and cultural centers of Judaism. Galilee has got too much Gentile influence to be clean and pure. The Jews kind of look down on that region. Like what good can come out of Nazareth of Galilee, they would say. But this guy shows up unknown to most that he is someone who's never sinned, to receive a baptism he did not need. Unknown to most, he is the true Israel. He's God's true son, God's only son, God's begotten son, God's beloved son, the son whom he loves. Now his cousin, John the baptizer, he knows who he is. So John would say something like in John chapter 21 when he saw him, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Uh, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. John knows who he is. 
But, but does John truly understand why Jesus came to be baptized? You see, Jesus didn't come to be baptized because he was a sinner who needed to repent. He came to identify with sinners who needed to repent because his entire ministry was a ministry of substitution, humility, service, sacrifice. And what he would eventually do on the cross for sinners like you and me begins at his baptism. When he stands in our place, identifies with us, he offers up true repentance. Like Jesus always turned from sin. Repentance is turning from sin, turning to faith in Christ. Jesus always, never sinned. He always turned from sin. He always had faith, true faith, 100% faith in God. So he stands in our place to offer up what we cannot offer and what we need. This was part of fulfilling righteousness, right? Jesus came and lived the life that you and I fail at every single day. And so all through his ministry, he's doing the things that we fail at for us. So that when we place our faith and trust in Christ and we receive the new birth in God's sight, we get credit for all the righteous things that Jesus is doing. Like salvation is not just forgiveness of sins. Salvation is, here's the gift of my righteousness so that always in God's eyes, you are righteous. Always. Always. Like on your worst day. You're still righteous in God's eyes. When you're most afraid, when you blow it the most, when you fail the most as a father, a mother, a husband, a wife, you're still righteous in God's eyes because your righteousness is a gift of God he's given us through Christ. So Jesus being baptized, taking on this baptism, standing in our place, identifying with us is part of his fulfilling all righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him he might become the righteousness of God. It's not just that Jesus did everything right and we get credit for his righteousness, but he also absorbed the wrath of God for all of our failures. Not his failures, our failures. Of paying the penalty for our sin on the cross. And so from the very beginning of his ministry, we're already, and he's already, having his heart and mind drawn to the cross. This is where I'm going. This is part of me identifying and standing in the place of these people. I'm giving them something they could never earn, and I'm absorbing a wrath that they fully deserve. And this is a gift of my grace and my love as I make these people my people. And I baptize them with this Holy Spirit. So then what is the relationship, you may ask, between his baptism and our baptism? So is this why we're baptized as Christians? Is this why we practice this? Jesus was, was baptized. He took on this humbly, willingly. He who had baptized with the Holy Spirit first humbly submitted to this water baptism to identify with people he would come and save. So are we baptized like Jesus? Jesus was baptized, so we're baptized. And actually, that's not true. We are not baptized simply because Jesus was baptized. His baptism was incredibly unique. Jesus is baptized, as we'll see, the heavens were ripped open the Holy Spirit descends like a dove and a voice from heaven speaks. Did that happen at anybody's baptism in here? I've never seen that. Like We're just hoping people clap and cheer a little bit, right? This is very, very unique. So then why do we get baptized? Well, even though Jesus' baptism was unique, uh, this baptism of repentance continued, actually. In fact, Jesus participated in these. John chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although 
Jesus himself did not baptize, John was quick to point out, but only his disciples. So this baptism continued. We didn't read of any more of these baptisms throughout the rest of the Gospels. But as Jesus uh, was crucified, rises from the dead, teaches his disciples for 40 days before he ascends into heaven, he tells his disciples, this mission I'm giving you is what? Matthew 28. Um, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So Jesus commands that baptizing becomes a part of our mission, our mission to go and make disciples. Fast forward to the days of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit falls and 120 disciples of Jesus receive the Holy Spirit. They leave the upper room. They begin to proclaim the gospel. And at the end of Peter's Pentecostal sermon in Acts chapter 2, the people say, say this. They were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the baptism that they had practiced in the Gospels that Jesus commanded his disciples to do became an essential part of the early church. So that through the rest of the book of Acts, you don't find one single unbaptized believer. In fact, through the Gospels and Acts, every single person that's recorded that, that professes faith in Christ is baptized. Except for one, the thief on the cross. He's the only one. Now, now, some people take this too far and say, well, then baptism must be essential for salvation. You have to be baptized to be saved. And we don't think that that holds up to scriptural authority, right? But baptism should be a part of your salvation. Like an unbaptized Christian should be as rare as the thief on the cross. There should be some extenuating circumstances that make it hard or difficult or impossible for you to be baptized. Uh, a couple of years ago, 2012, I received some training from some missionaries from the, the east, far east, India, China. And they, they told us that over there, when someone professes faith in Christ and they determine when they're going to be baptized, they don't look at a calendar, they look at their watch. Because they know that to publicly profess Christ in that culture comes with such a cost that that person wants to do it right then. Because they're willing to pay the price right then. Now, in our culture, baptism in many ways has been watered down. So that it's kind of like joining the Mickey Mouse Club or the cool club in church or my friend did it, so I want to do it. And so there's a lot of people who are baptized and you, you question their motivations. Like, why are you doing this? Where's the cost at to be a follower of Christ? Where's the cost to be a disciple of Christ? And so we, we want to do some things as the Crossing Church to, to, to help you count the costs. And so um, what we want to have on the Easter Sunday at the end of March is a baptismal service for anyone who uh, is either a part of us now and has never been baptized publicly as a, a follower of Christ, or for someone that we come across in the next four weeks who comes alive in Christ and wants to publicly de- declare their faith in Christ. And what will happen is what we have uh, kind of reserved a portable baptistry, and uh, you'll come, and, and you'll get in the baptismal waters, and you'll, you'll publicly profess your faith in Christ to this church family. And we'll help you with that. We'll let you write it on out and you can read it. It's just like a one or two minute version of your story. And then whoever is the most significant person to your conversion will be the one who lowers you in the water and brings you up out of the water, signifying the work that Christ has done in you. So it might be one of our pastors. It might be a parent baptizing their child. It might be another person who's a part of your life who was the person who was most significant to you in your conversion process. And so um, if that's something that you have not received as a follower of Christ, like maybe you were baptized as an infant, you've never been baptized as a follower of Jesus. Um, if that's something else that you want to, to explore, then, then let me or Kendrick or Scott know. We want to walk you through that and help you figure that out. 
um, if that's something you need to, to receive. If you have questions, confusion, um, let us know and let's walk you through that. But essentially baptism is the public declaration of the work of God in us. Romans 6, 1-4, what shall we say then? Or do we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. And if you become a Christian as a part of the Crossing Church and you want to tell everybody you're a Christian, what we're going to tell you is be baptized. Don't stand up here and say it. Be baptized. That's how we let the world know. Now, back to uh, Jesus' baptism. Um, because it's not just what Jesus did, it's also what happened to him that was very powerful about what it said about Christ. Verse 10 and 11. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit, of, of, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The sky was torn open. Very descriptive imagery Mark is using, uh, reminding us of Isaiah 64, 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, the prophet is saying to God. The word is used only one other time in the Gospel of Mark when Jesus is crucified in the temple, in the, the curtain in the temple that separates the people from God, the Holy of Holies from the people. Only the high priest can go in there once a year. That court curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. Same exact word. This, this tearing of this union between heaven and earth, between God and man. God is allowing access. In the temple, he's inviting us in. Now he's coming down to us. As Jesus comes out of the water, heaven literally comes down, tears through the sky to bestow on his servant this Holy Spirit, this public affirmation. In both instances... The word torn is used as a declaration of Jesus as God's son. Here by heaven in Mark 15 by the Roman soldier at the cross. And as he comes down, as as Jesus comes up out of the water, so definitely baptism by immersion. I'm not going to dwell there, just want to point that out. He comes up out of the water, heavens rip open, the spirit descends like a dove, not an actual dove, but like a dove, and this voice speaks. This is mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. Literally, in the original language of the New Testament, it says the Spirit descended into him. Not on him or around him. The Spirit comes and goes into Jesus. Very much carrying along this Old Testament idea of the Holy Spirit anointing and empowering the work of God. Now, it's not that Jesus didn't have the Holy Spirit before now. Like, you go 30 years without committing a sin, repenting of, or, or, or turning away from every single temptation that you face, that's only possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus was in the womb of Mary, the Holy Spirit filled John the Baptist when he was in the womb of Elizabeth. And he leapt for joy in the womb. So the Holy Spirit was active. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has always been a part of his life. But this is, this is a significant heaven ripping open the Spirit, descending, fulfilling Old Testament expectations the Jews had that we mentioned last uh, uh, two weeks ago when the Lord comes and establishes his kingdom. This anointing for ministry and service that Jesus was receiving. It was assumed by the Jews that God no longer spoke directly to his people. Now he comes, this one from Nazareth, the greater one, stronger one, according to John, and now heaven is literally ripping open, reaching down, and empowering this one with the power to reveal God in ways like we had never seen before. 
This is a visual fulfillment of Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. And if that's not enough, the Spirit descending, empowering for this ministry, heaven speaks. God speaks audibly. This only happens one other time in the life of Christ, the mountain transfiguration. And in both instances, there's this reference to sonship. This is my son. Or here, this is my beloved son. You also have one of the few places in Scripture where you actually see the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. God is one in three persons. So it's a theology that's absolutely essential to who we are. Like this, this is the ones we would die for, right? It's essential that God be one and God be three. If Jesus is not God, if the Holy Spirit's not God, if there is no Father, then our salvation falls apart. We have nothing. And if there's more than one God, it's polytheism, then we have nothing also, right? But the Bible does not explicitly say Okay, here's the Trinity. I want to explain this to y'all. God is one God. It didn't say that. But it is explicitly seen in Scripture, like in places like this. Then you have this divine declaration. This is my beloved son. Echoes of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22. Echoes of Psalm 2 that we read at the beginning of the service. This unique declaration of identity with whom God the Father shared with no one else. God never said this about anybody else in Scripture. Abraham was his friend. Moses was a servant. Aaron was a chosen one of God. David was a man after God's heart. Paul was an apostle. But there's no other man whom God said, you are my son, except for Jesus. And then he says, with whom I am well pleased. Pleased. Well, why is the father pleased with the son? Like, this is the beginning of his ministry. He's not done anything. You'd think this is something he would have said like on the cross as he's about to die. He'd declare from heaven, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. He's done everything I've asked him to do. But he's not done anything yet. He hasn't healed anyone. He hasn't turned water to wine. He hasn't cast out any demons. He hasn't calmed any storms. He hasn't walked on water. He hasn't rebuked any heretical or hypocritical religious leaders. Like, How can he already be pleased with the Father? Or with the Son, rather. And what is happening is we get this small inside look in the relationship between the Father and the Son and the love that existed between the two of them. A love that's not rooted in performance, but a love that was rooted in His nature and His identity. In other words, simply because He was His Son. He was well pleased. And we, like we get this, especially if you're a parent. And my kids don't have to do anything for me to love them and be well-pleased with them. They don't have to jump through hoops. They don't have to have a perfect day. They don't have to do well in school or sports or respect their mother perfectly and honor her perfectly all day. Like, it's just because they are my children. I love them, and I'm well like, like on Saturday mornings, I'll, I'll go wake them up like yesterday and, and fix them a nice, hot, warm breakfast and and begin to call them out of bed to come eat this nice warm breakfast that I prepared for them. And all they've done is sleep. Done nothing to deserve that breakfast. They've just been sleeping all night. Some of them even wake up, which would make them not deserve breakfast. But we still let them eat. Because they're our children. And they, uh, we're always pleased with them. We always love them. Timothy doesn't eat the breakfast yet, but he, he's going to get there one day. Right? And so that's how we feel about our children. And I'm incredibly sinful and imperfect. 
in a much greater way. God the Father feels that way about God the Son all the time. And now this is affirmed not because of anything he's done, but simply because he's his son, his beloved son. And now here's the power you need to go and do this ministry that I'm sending you out to do, to act as God because you are God in the flesh, to do things only God can do. This was, this was all prophesied by, by Isaiah in Isaiah 42, verse 1 through 4. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Who Jesus is and the demonstration of his power will be these key themes that we can follow throughout the book of Mark. And they are key themes to who we are as a church and who we are as Christians. Identity and power. So one way to think about identity is to think about it in, in layers. Uh, anthropologist Paul Hebert describes identity like that. Think about it in layers to your identity. There are innumerable layers to your life, who you are, what you do, that make you feel the way you feel about yourself, that make you see your value, your worth, uh, why you are who you are. Like we could just list them. In fact, if we had a whiteboard, I would just have taken a moment to go through potential layers that could make up the identity of, of people in this room. But let's just have this pretend person. Let's have a guy who works at CenturyLink, uh, who has a wife, two kids, who uh, is an LSU fan, um, and graduated from ULM. This guy probably exists, like dozens of them in our area, right? Um, so, so this guy has all these layers to his identity, and there's more than that, but let's just go with those few because we can keep track of it, right? This guy has all these layers to identity, and let's, let's just assume that his identity, his core identity, who really he is, who he sees himself as more than anything else, is a, a businessman, an employee of CenturyLink. His job is his identity. So there are other layers that add to that, but at the root of who he is, his core layer is his job. So as long as his job is going well, and his core identity is satisfied, it doesn't really matter if, I say he votes Republican, if the Republicans win the White House or not. It's not that big of a deal if LSU wins or loses. I mean, he cares, but he's not, it's not going to shake him to the core of who he is. He engages his wife and kids, but, but they're more distractions that keep him away from who he really sees himself as. Right? In other words, he is as... He is experiencing success or failure in his job. Will he be successful? Will he climb up the corporate ladder? Will he earn more money, more recognition, more praise, more honor? That's what matters more than anything else. And here's the thing. All those other things will be sacrificed for his core identity. If he fails or if he gets fired... And his world comes crashing down. You can all identify what is at the core layer of your identity by asking questions like, where do you go when life is tough? Where do you warm yourself when it's cold outside, metaphorically speaking? Where is your happy place where you most love to be? Where does everything make sense? 
Now let's say this guy one day, by God's grace, has his eyes open to the beauty and reality of Jesus. He comes alive in Christ. He becomes a Christian. The Bible says when that happens, he gets a new identity. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is past. Behold, the new has come. All of a sudden, Jesus becomes the core layer of his identity. And everything else begins to be filtered through and be built upon this new core identity. Because what you find out is if anything other than Jesus is at your core identity, that thing will ask you to sacrifice other parts of your life so you can feed that core identity, worship that core identity. If my job is who I am, then I sacrifice my family or whatever else I need to sacrifice to feed my job. If my hobbies are who I am, then everything else exists to serve my hobbies. If my family, a good thing, is who I am, then I will sacrifice other things and everything else exists to help me worship my family. In other words, when anything or anyone other than Christ is your core layer of identity, you become a slave to it and you sacrifice anything and anyone else to help you worship this false God. But when Christ is at the core of who you are. He's already paid the price and made the sacrifice for you. You are as secure as you possibly can be. Your identity becomes wrapped up in His identity and as the Father saw the Son, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased, so now the Father sees you. This is my Son or my daughter with whom I'm always well pleased. Not based on your performance, but based on the performance of Christ. He did it all. He satisfied everything. And what you find is that when Christ is at the core of your identity, you become a slave to Christ, which is actually freedom to do what is good and right, and he sets you free to serve others and sacrifice for the good of others. And if Christ is at your core identity, other areas of your life can be rocked and shaken, but you stand firm because Christ is your foundation. He is enough. So so this morning, do you know Christ? Have you come alive in Christ? Are you in Christ? Is Christ in you? So that it is even possible for Christ to be your foundation. Like you might be lost this morning. You might be just religious. And this morning Christ is calling you to repent of your sins and believe in him and receive from him salvation, forgiveness, life, and this new identity. And we would wholeheartedly say to you, repent, believe in the gospel, receive life from Christ. Let him make you a new person. Come alive in him. And let him be the foundation, the center of your life through which everything else is flavored. And if that's you this morning, then then let somebody know. Like when we have communion in a few moments in a time of prayer, go up to somebody and tell them. Come up to me or or Kendrick and let us know. If you need to talk to somebody about that, like we will buy you lunch today. Lunch is free to talk to you about where you're at in your relationship with Jesus Christ. We'll go meet with you right now in one of those back rooms. Don't leave here without discussing this with someone. And if you're already a Christian, do you see the areas of your life where you're most prone to replace Christ with as the basis of your identity? Like everyone in this, everyone in here who's a Christian is prone to take any number of things 
and replace Christ with that thing as the basis of our core identity. Like it can be good things, like family, like work, jobs, are really stupid, superficial things, like how I looked this morning, what I wore this morning, how my hair did this morning. Like I'm really worried about that. Or how I did playing Ultimate Frisbee yesterday. Like if I played really well yesterday at ULM, then look at me how amazing I am. I feel great about myself. I'm very, very much determining that I am good because I had a good game of Ultimate Frisbee. Or if I failed miserably at Ultimate Frisbee, I'm the worst. I feel terrible about myself. If you're a Steph Curry fan, you're floating this morning. It's amazing how good he is, right? If your identity is wrapped up in somebody who can shoot a basketball. So do you see this in your life? Do you see these areas that you're most prone to replace with Christ as the core nature of your identity, who you are, how you feel about yourself, what you determine about yourself? By God's grace, can you repent and return to the love of the Father who sees you in Christ always as a dearly loved child and you have this eternal identity that provides all the security that you ever need? Or maybe some here, and I really believe that all of us at times... We get to such a hard place, such a dark place, that we, we can't see Christ. We can't see His beauty. We can't see who we are in Christ. We can't see what He says about us. We can't see our, our identity as rooted in Christ. And we all go through those times, those seasons, some probably more than others, where we need each other. Because I am too weak and it's too dark. I cannot preach the gospel to myself. I need my brothers and sisters to come and preach the gospel to me, to come and simply remind me of who I am in Christ. And it's part of our core identity as a church that we're family, and we're here to do that for each other. Some of you have already felt that. When you start to drift, we've come that, we came after you. We're coming after you. We're not going to allow you to just drift away and fall through the cracks and be forgotten. We're coming after you until you tell us, stop coming after me. I'm engaging with this other body of believers over here. Okay, we'll back off. You sure? How often are you going? Okay, all right, we'll back off. Why? Because we have a God who pursues us. We, his people, then pursue each other and come after each other to preach the gospel and remind each other of who we are in Christ because we need it and we love each other and we care deeply for each other. And we don't want to see each other become a statistic or a casualty or another broken family or another divorce or another adultery or another whatever. And then, of course, power. As Jesus received the Holy Spirit to empower all of his life and ministry, so we also do. Jesus was not Superman. He was fully human as well as fully God. But because of his humanity, he needed the Holy Spirit to do everything he was about to do over the next three years. And the beautiful thing is, it's the same for us. You don't become a Christian apart from the Holy Spirit coming to live inside of you and making you a new person. And then every single good thing you do from then on is empowered by the Holy Spirit. In other words, every good thing that produces spiritual fruit that gives glory to God. Every good fruit, every good God-glorifying thing that you do is simply because of the Holy Spirit. So like if you're here this morning 
And this is not like you go into a movie or you go into a restaurant and you're just critiquing everything. And you're not here to be seen so other people think you're an amazing Christian. But like if you're here this morning to love your brothers and sisters in Christ, to, to see Christ made much of, to engage with the God who created the universe and be in his presence and experience the presence of God. If you're here for the right reasons this morning, it's because the Holy Spirit is in you, empowering that. There's no way that happens apart from the Holy Spirit of God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God, Romans 8 tells us. It's only because the Spirit is in you. And if you go to your job tomorrow, you go to school tomorrow, and you see others as more important than yourself, and you're serving them, and you're loving them, and you're engaging with them for their good to to get to the gospel and to share Christ and the love of Christ with them, it's because the Holy Spirit is alive and working and empowering that. Last weekend at our church retreat, we were challenged in that area of personal evangelism and disciple-making. In other words, who are you pursuing and being intentional with individually? What people that you know who are lost, far from God, not experiencing the joy of their salvation, what people are you intentionally pursuing to, to have a relationship with to eventually get to gospel conversations Like, we want to list them out. We want to know them by name. We want to pray for them. And we were challenged to to examine ourselves how we're doing, the fact that we're missionaries. And so how and where is your life as a missionary showing up in your your individual life? And we confessed a lot of failures and a lot of frustrations. We confessed how, how we had not done well, a lot of fears. And so how did you do this last week? Like, without going around this room and answering that question, how did you do this last week? Were you more intentional? Did you at least share the things that God showed you with DNA, missional community people, so they can begin to encourage you and hold you accountable? Like, this is what I want my life to look like as a follower of Jesus. This is what I want my intentional missionary identity to look like as a follower of Jesus. Do you see that God has called you to this? And if we don't do it together, we will fail. And there'll just be more fear, more failure, more despair heaped upon what we already have. Right? God has called you to this. He's promised to equip and empower us to do everything he's called us to do. Do you see that you're not alone? That you have the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, Ephesians 1 tells us. We have the body of Christ. We have brothers and sisters to help. And you can do this, not because you're amazing. You're not. He is amazing. He makes us amazing because of how he works in us and through us to others. And so this morning, see the baptism of Jesus as this bold declaration of his identity and power and see in a similar way our baptism, our life in Christ, our identifying with Christ as God's bold declaration over you about who you are and what he's calling you and empowering you to do. What God says about you in Christ is the most fundamental layer of identity to who you are. So see it. Believe it. Embrace it. Let it be everything that God has intended for it to be. And then let's go chase it together. Let's go after it together and actually be the people of God that our city needs. All right? Father, I'm so thankful for your grace and your mercy. Thankful for how you have not only created us, but called us. Thankful for how you still speak to us. 
So, Father, I don't, I don't know specifically how you worked in the hearts and lives of people here. I know how you've spoken to me today and this week. We thank you for that gift of your grace that you're, you're not through with us. You're continually working on us and shaping us and molding us. And so whatever ways you have spoken to your people this morning, God, help us now by your grace to respond in repentance and faith. If that means for some, they truly come alive for the first time in Christ, and we celebrate that. We want to see that. For others, if it's a continual part of their sanctification, Father, we pray that this will be a meaningful day in the lives and hearts of your people. We will remember how you spoke to us today and changed us. And then we'll go live it out this week. Thank you that you do not call us to anything without also equipping us and empowering us to obedience. And so we're not alone. We don't just have to do more and try harder. We simply have to be who you have called and created us to be. We thank you for that. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to respond this morning.